We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we shall read from verse 18. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And may the Lord bless us with a measure of understanding of what we read. And we come to further consider these writings that John is directed and instructed to write to the seven churches in Asia and through them to the whole universal church. You note that at the end of each of the seven letters as they're referred to, to the seven churches, we read repeatedly the same words, these Things saith the Spirit unto the churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And it is your duty and mine to carefully consider what is written via these churches to ourselves in our day and generation. Now, last week we managed to give some consideration to the uh, what is written to the church in Ephesus, the uh, the most distinguished, as it were, and most established in a sense of the seven churches referred to. We know that there were more than seven churches in Asia, but there was the need for these seven messages that would sum up everything that the Savior, the glorified Christ, would have to say to his people. The various uh, warnings and the various counsels and the advice that is given is applicable to the whole church in any generation. But we cannot possibly proceed with any hope of understanding what is written to the seven churches until we are certain we know something of the author himself, how the churches are to actually view him and how they are to understand their relationship to him and his relationship to them. You will see that when John, on the Lord's day, is in the Spirit and has these visions, we noted the awakening sound of the trumpet that got his attention, and he heard a voice, and when he turned to where the voice came from, he saw a person. And he saw one that he'd been familiar with before when he was alive, when he was ministering among his disciples in the world. But now he meets him again. We do not know exactly how many years have passed since John would have stood with the other disciples, witnessing the Savior disappearing from you 
as he ascended into the Father's presence. And maybe there were times when John wondered, what is going on? What is Jesus of Nazareth doing now? What is the purpose of his existence now? Is his ministry at an end? Or does he have any continued ministry? What is he actually doing? And you can understand in John's circumstances how important this would be that he and the church would have some knowledge of exactly what their ascended Lord was doing, how they must view him, what is his relationship to the church. And so you have the glorified Christ in communication with John telling him certain things about himself. Before the risen Christ has anything to say about the churches, before he tells John what to write to the churches about what he knows about them, the first thing that John is to write about is Christ. Tell them who I am. Tell them what I am. Tell them about me, because any other knowledge they have is irrelevant if they don't have a proper knowledge of me, the glorified Redeemer. Now, my dear friends, these things are not written accidentally. The order, the divine order is important, and we need to take note of it. The absolute importance of a correct knowledge of Christ. Whatever the churches are doing, whatever they're involved in, whatever they claim, if their knowledge of Christ is deficient, then everything is deficient. Their theology, their gospel, their faith, this is absolutely essential. And you have Christ saying to John what he is as well as what John sees. John sees what he can interpret, he can understand, but then in addition to what he sees, there's what he hears. What he sees and what he hears is both important. And what is John to do with this? He is obviously to write to the churches about it, and therefore they are to uh, understand the importance of their knowledge of him. Whatever they think they know, they must know what he wants them to know. And the very first thing that we see John has to hear and understand, and thus write to the churches about it in chapter 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Who is the faithful witness. You imagine coming to the church at Ephesus and you meet one of the office bearers or you come into contact with one of the members and you ask them, what's your assessment of the state and condition of the church in Ephesus? Well, they might be able to say, well, I've been in the church in Ephesus now for quite a number of years. And I can actually remember sitting under the ministry of Paul for three years. 
I can remember important events, the time when he actually ordained elders in Ephesus. I can remember that sad occasion when he left and how we wept as we went down to the harbor to see him and board a ship as he left us. I have been involved in the life of the church in Ephesus for a long time. And I think, in contrast to other churches, we're quite orthodox. We haven't departed from the faith. We have kept the faith. We have kept and maintained discipline in our church in Ephesus. We have uh, exposed the false prophets and the false apostles. We have maintained standards in our church at Ephesus. And you might ask someone else, can you confirm that? Oh, yes. I haven't been around just as long, but we have a faithful ministry in Ephesus. We maintain the old doctrines of the apostles. We haven't departed from them. We haven't watered the truth down. And you might get the impression, well... It's not perfect, but that's the kind of a church I would want to be in. That's one thing we observe very clearly when we look at the message to the seven churches. We need not expect perfection anywhere. Even the Savior. These are his churches, but he he exposes what is wrong in these various churches. Some people think, well, I'll flit around here and I'll go there and I'll find the perfect church and when I find it, I'll be the happiest man or the happiest woman on earth. And they keep searching and they never find it. But one thing John must tell the churches is this, before they hear any message, before they hear anything of what he has to say, what Christ has to say about them, they are to know this, that the message that is coming is from the faithful witness. From the faithful witness. Now they might say, well, Jesus ascended into heaven. And he's no longer with us. We never see him physically in any Lord's days in Ephesus. He's the faithful witness. And how is he the faithful witness? Because he walks amidst the seven golden candlesticks. And he witnesses everything. How do we feel about that? How does that affect us? Or do we not believe it? You imagine the people in Ephesus, they've come in the Lord's day, and then there's an announcement, an intimation made, we have received a letter from John the Apostle in the Isle of Patmos. And this letter is from our glorified Lord, Jesus Christ. And he has told John to write to us and tell us that what he says is the result of what he has witnessed. He's witnessed. Reality, and therefore he's talking to us and he is sending a message on the basis of first-hand information. It's not second-hand. He's the witness. wonder what he witnesses today. wonder what he's witnessing now. The witness, the 
the faithful witness who sees into every heart, sees into every mind, understands every thought, witnessing those who are careless and indifferent, witnessing their attitudes to the truth, witnessing their rebellion against it, witnessing their disinterest, witnessing their boredom with the truth and with what he has to say to them. He witnesses it all. Oh, that God the Holy Spirit would impress that upon us, the faithful witness. I who send these messages, John, am the most reliable witness with the most accurate testimony that cannot be questioned and cannot be refuted. That's who these messages are coming from. Do we have any experience of Christ as the faithful witness? Do we come to him day by day, show me myself, show me my heart, show me the condition of my soul, I cannot trust myself. I dare not. The heart is deceitful above all things. But I come to thee, the faithful witness, the one who will not lie to me, the one who will not deceive me, the one who will be honest with me, who will tell me the truth as to my state and condition. Or do we think we don't need him? We've got sufficient wisdom, sufficient understanding that we can do it all ourselves. This is the first thing that John has to understand, that he is the faithful witness. But then, uh, we've noted something of this in the past, he tells John he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, you will understand that these are references to the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet, the alphabet that was necessary in order to communicate. Men couldn't communicate if they didn't know the language, and they couldn't know the language if they didn't know the alphabet. Any child knows that. So here is... The Redeemer telling John, not only am I the faithful witness, but I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last as far as communicating truth is concerned. I have the authority and the capacity and the knowledge and the understanding to to communicate most perfectly. No one there, that's why we, we read, we've noted it already, nothing was to be added to what was written and nothing was to be taken from it. Because it is the most perfect communication. And it comes from the one of whom Paul writes and him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No one could possibly send a more accurate message to the seven churches in Asia, nor to you and I. Not only is he the Alpha and the Omega, we are told, he he says, uh, verse 17, I am the first and the last. There's been no one before me and there will be no one after me in a position to communicate as I do. I am the first word and the last word. Everything begins with me and it ends with me. 
And therefore, the church must know that its very life and existence is bound up with me. But then, in addition, he describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, in addition to the Father claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega. So he claims, and he is saying to John, remind the churches of my deity. I am God, but I am the Almighty, not just mighty. I am the Almighty, verse uh, 8. I am the Almighty. The Father claims that, and the Eternal Son does as well. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and I am the Almighty over all things. But then, in addition... I am the one that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am the Almighty who is alive and active. I am very much alive. I don't know what it's like here, but back in the United Kingdom, they used to make a lot of jokes about what they called the councilmen or the county men. And there would be about six or seven of them all leaning in shovels. And they were supposed to be repairing the road. And they were all looking at each other as though they weren't sure what exactly they were to do with the implements they had in their hands. And sometimes the jokes would be that they were the standing dead because they were so inactive. Here is one who's saying, I am active. I am not just seated in a throne. Having triumphed over death and over hell, I am alive and I am alive forevermore. I am, I am, I am. You see the repetition. Taking the mind of John and the churches back to Exodus. When Moses there was in the wilderness and was attracted to the bush that burned but wasn't consumed. And what did the voice from that bush say? I am that I am. I am (coughs) that I am. You remember the Apostle Paul. And he was able to say marvelously, by the grace of God, I am what I am. How different when the glorified Christ says, I am. I am that I am. How very different. And he says, I am the first and the last. I am he that was and is and is to be. I am immutable. I don't change. I am reliable. John, you remember how you found me during my earthly ministry? I'm still the same. I still have that power that on occasions I demonstrated. I am that I am immutably. Now this is the one you see that the church needs to know about and needs to know to have any confidence in him so that when he writes they don't say, well, What does he know about us in Ephesus? And what can he do for us in Ephesus? Here we are struggling. Here we are being persecuted. What does he know about us? What can he do for us? 
Ah, they get this message from the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. They receive it from the faithful witness who witnesses the life of the church, but also the opposition to the church. Now then, we may consider secondly what John is to convey to the churches what Christ desires the churches to understand about their own existence. Why do they actually exist? What's the purpose for their existence? These seven churches in Asia and any other uh, churches. Unto the church of Ephesus right. Unto the church of Smyrna right. And so on. Now, men and women in various generations may have their own notions and their own opinions. Well, the church should be like this. The church should do this. Or the church should do that. And so on. Well, we are told from the glorious head of the church himself, what the business and the purpose of the church is. The end of the chapter 1, here's what John is to write about. Verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, let's stop for a moment and think. The book of the Revelation is full of symbols. Symbols that convey to us Spiritual and important truths. Now, who is the one who wisely, knowledgeably writes using the symbols? What are we reading at each, in each message to the churches? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The Holy Spirit is involved. But the one who's writing is the Alpha and the Omega, who knows perfectly, exactly the language, the very words to use. Why would he say, I am the Alpha and the Omega? So that we might know, not only is he the first and the last, but he knows how to convey in the best possible way the mind of God. So let us not think, well, if I was writing this letter, I think I would change the symbols a little. Or maybe I wouldn't use any at all. I'd make it so simple. I would convey the truth by other terminology, with other symbols, in other language. The symbols you and I have cannot be improved upon. This is the divine word and these symbols are intended to communicate divine truth from the faithful witness. What are we to understand is the purpose of the church. 
It is to be as a light. And if it is not a light, it doesn't serve the purpose for which it is supposed to exist. John is told the seven candlesticks bearing light represent, symbolize the seven churches. What is the purpose of a candlestick if it doesn't have light? It might as well be a broom handle. Worthless, useless. The whole idea is that it shines. That it is useful in the darkness. And here John is to understand from the faithful witness the purpose of the churches of Christ and the world is to be shining lights in the darkness, testifying to the reality of the darkness. You go out in the midday and you look for the sun. Can you find it? Can you see the moon when everything's bright? You say, well, the moon gives light. Yeah, but when do you see it? In the darkness. And the greater the darkness, the brighter the light. What's the church supposed to be doing? A light in the darkness. So we have to ask ourselves... Well, if the faithful witness walks among us, walks in our midst as a congregation here in Grafton, kind of a testimony do we have? Are we shining in the midst of the darkness? We talk plenty about the darkness, the immorality, the godlessness, the lack of reverence for God and the things of God. We talk about the ignorance of people all around us. Well, what light are we in the midst of the darkness? That's what these seven churches are intended to be in Asia. Asia was part of the Roman Empire. Ephesus is the great city of immorality. One of the I just forget his name now. One of the ancient philosophers was called the weeping philosopher. And when he was asked why he wept so much, living in Ephesus, he said that anyone living in Ephesus must weep over the immorality of the place. It was a place full of sin. And the church was there as a golden candlestick, precious to God, precious to Christ, because it brought light in the darkness. And it was worthless and useless if it didn't. But this light, these candlesticks, seven meaning, of course, That was a symbol in itself, symbolic language, the number of completion and perfection. And here, all the churches are identified in the same way. There's seven golden candlesticks. We don't have a golden candlestick in Ephesus and a silver candlestick in Smyrna and a copper or brass candlestick in Philadelphia or anything like that. They're all equally precious and all equally light bearers. They're all to serve the same purpose. But they have a particular relationship to Christ. We are told when John saw these Golden candlesticks at the first, verse 12 of chapter 1. I turned 
to see the voice that speak with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now what has John just heard? A voice like the sound of a trumpet. Where did that voice like the sound of a trumpet come from? We would expect surely when John would turn around he would see the person who has spoken. But he sees seven golden candlesticks. What was John seeing? What was he hearing? The most majestic voice, the most authoritative voice in the universe, Where's it coming from? From the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. John was hearing the voice of his glorified Redeemer speaking from out of the midst of the churches. And my dear friends, If his voice is not speaking in our midst, we serve no purpose. There is a relationship that must exist between the head and the body, between Christ in all his glory and splendor and majesty walking in the midst of the golden candlestick. But not only are they precious because they are gold and the purpose is that they be light bearers, but they have this particular relationship to the risen Lord and he has a particular relationship to them. I am the Almighty, maintaining and sustaining them. What else did he say? And John had heard it and he would have understood it for he recorded it. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. These golden candlesticks, they have light from him. They witness on his behalf. They testify for him. And he is so bound up with them and their witness is so bound up with him that he says to the Ephesians, if you people in Ephesus don't repent, I will remove your candlestick out of its place. I will not have a false witness. If you do not repent of your sins, I will remove the candlestick out of its place because it is not serving the purpose for which it is supposed to exist. Oh, my dear friend, These messages to these churches are solemn. They are searching. The fact is they are addressed to the conscience. They are addressed to the heart, to the understanding, but they are addressed to the conscience. The conscience of the church and the conscience of every individual in each of those churches. I have somewhat against thee. I have something against you. Oh, well. The natural reaction is, I don't want to hear about it. 
I don't want to know anything of it. I don't want to be disturbed. I don't want to be upset. I don't want to be distressed. I don't want to hear Christ, the faithful witness, telling me he's got anything against me. I'm pretty sure he has something against my neighbor. And I am very certain he has something against a lot of the churches around this uh, area. But no, not against us. Faithful witness says, I have somewhat against thee. What is your conscience going to respond like? But he walks, you see, in the midst of the golden candlesticks. And his light enlightens all the churches. And they bear witness as they shine. They shine. How do they shine? Well, if we go back to the parable that the Savior taught of the five foolish virgins, the five wise virgins, the five foolish, why were the five foolish lamenting? Our lamps have gone out. They've gone out. Oh, they used to be lit, but they've gone out. Why have they gone out? Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. The churches are depending on the Holy Spirit in order to bear witness, to shine in the darkness, to be faithful to Christ. But there is another important aspect of their ministry. And it's something that is, I believe, tragically, tragically overlooked today. And that is the importance of the relationship between the seven stars and the seven candlesticks. The seven stars, do we understand anything about these seven stars? What does Jesus say? And remember, he has chosen wisely to communicate messages to the seven churches by a very particular method. To the angel in the church in Ephesus. Now, I believe that there are various interpretations regarding these angels. And some men that are quite reliable, they have the opinion, hold the opinion, that these are actually angels because the word in the original is the same messenger angel. Uh, It is the same. And so these are the angels, the spiritual messengers to the church. Well, whatever an angel might do or not do, I don't think they read letters to churches. And that rules them out. Furthermore, John refers to himself as being associated with the churches, including the angel of the churches, and he refers to himself as being one with them. Uh, He, in the chapter 1, refers to himself as their brother and companion in tribulation. And there is this relationship between John and the church in Ephesus. He lived there before he was sent to the Isle of Patmos. So he knew the church well, and he would have understood what he was talking about. But these 
letters are sent to the angel of the church to be read to the church. Blessed is he that readeth. And these angels, messengers to the church, are to read these letters. Now, who are they? Well, let's see what Christ himself has to say, regardless of any other opinions. Verse 20 of chapter 1, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand. Now note that. In my right hand. Now, you will know that the right hand, the right arm, in Scripture always refers to authority. But here is Christ glorified, and in his right hand does he hold a sword? Does he hold a staff? Does he hold a scepter? No. You might expect that. Instead, he holds seven stars. Now, immediately, you know, not only are the seven candlesticks light-bearing objects, but stars give light as well. And here in the right hand of the glorified Christ are seven stars. Now, let's go back. Why does the Savior actually explain this to John? Because John wouldn't have appreciated how significant and important it was without this explanation. Neither would the churches. Let's go back up uh, to the uh, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that speak with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto... (coughs) the Son of Man. And we have his clothing indicating, as we pointed out, his prophet, priest, and king. But verse 16. Now, we dare not separate this from the rest of the description. He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's clothed with a garment to the foot. Gird about the paps with a golden girdle, head in his hairs, white as wool, feet like fine brass, and so on. And he has in his hand seven golden candlesticks. Now, is this a description of seven stars, or is it part of the description of the glorified Redeemer? It is a continuation of the description of him. Every bit as important to note as the fact that his garment is down to his foot, that he is one girt about with a golden girdle, That's all part of the description conveying to us something about him. In his right hand, he has seven stars. It's him. It's his hand. It's what he possesses. It's what he holds. These seven stars belong to him. They are bound up with his glory They are conveying something of the complete message regarding him. Every bit as important 
as his garment or anything else about him. This is part of the description regarding him. And yet, these seven stars are the seven angels or the messengers of the seven churches. Now, to understand a little of what is really meant here, you look at what the faithful witness has to say about the the conduct and the activity in the church at Ephesus. Verse 2 of chapter 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, then what? And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. There was discipline and order in the church at Ephesus. But how did they exercise and maintain this order and discipline? They tried those and they tested those who claimed to be Christ's messengers, who claimed to be his angels, who claimed to be sent by him. Apostles are those who are sent. And these men were coming claiming, we we are sent by Christ. We are sent by the head of the church. We are sent to you at Ephesus. We're going to proclaim to you the word of God. What did they do at the church at Ephesus? They said, well, no, no, don't get into great a hurry. We want to know for sure. We're going to try you and make sure. Now, in the Presbyterian system, in our own branch of the church, You may not be familiar with the customs and the practices and the procedures, but when a young man finishes his divinity studies and he has successfully passed his examinations, it's reported to the presbytery that he belongs to. And what is reported? That he is now ready for license. He's now ready for license to be taken on trials. Taken on trials. Why is he taken on trials? Sure, he's passed his exams. Sure, he knows theology. He's taken on trials before he's ordained to ensure as far as humanly possible that he gives evidences he's been called. It's absolutely ridiculous. And you have, you have them here in Australia. Men who managed somehow or other to, to be ordained without any trials. Not even, not even studying theology, but not even tried. Not even tested. Here we have seven stars that belong to Christ, but they are part of the manifestation of his glory. What does the golden girdle say? What's it testify to? His glory. 
his garment down to his foot, the glory of his priesthood. The glory that is manifest in the person and in the work of the glorified Redeemer. And what is the what is John to write to the churches? These seven messengers, these angels, these messengers are bound up with Christ's honor and Christ's glory. Now, I have to say this. That the night that I was ordained to the ministry, I did not know much about what the ministry was all about. Because basically, I had not the capacity to understand it experientially. And no one basically taught me these solemn realities. The honor of Christ is bound up with the ministry. The ministry is part of his honor. Now, do not be surprised. And I sometimes wonder why people are so surprised. When you see a congregation, and you see it almost going out of existence, why is that? Used to be crowds there. There's a ministry there. There was order there. While Christ was dishonored because the star was dishonored. And congregations don't sometimes appreciate what they're even doing when they call a minister one of Christ's servants. Because they're in his hand. And he sovereignly holds them. And he alone controls them. They belong to him. That's why we read that chapter from John's Gospel, chapter 13. And there Jesus says this. Verse 20. You have it again. In Luke's Gospel as well, but here in John 13, verse 20, Jesus said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, surely, surely, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Jesus was emphasizing to his disciples again and and look. When I send one of my messengers, one of the stars that my glory is bound up with, and he is not received, or he is ill-treated, or he is abused. What will I do? I will remove the candlestick out of its place. That's what I will do. Because the light in the candlestick is bound up with the light of the star. It's a solemn, solemn matter. Congregations and churches today look around, well, we want a minister. So we'll have a look around and see who we can find. We'll invite this one, we'll invite that one. The only one who can give a minister is Christ. No one else. And therefore, the pleading and the praying must be to him. And he puts the star or the messenger in the congregation 
so that his glory will be revealed and exhibited in that congregation. And if that servant, that messenger, is rejected or abused or his ministry is undermined or whatever, the glory of Christ is bound up with it. And his glory then is defaced. These are solemn, solemn matters. We live in an age of frivolity and superficiality and lightness. And I wonder, do we even know today what the Christian ministry is really all about? How solemn a matter it is to pray for a minister. How solemn to call a minister. How solemn to receive him. How solemn to have him. Because Christ and him go together. But the time is gone. We better leave it there. May the Lord bless to us his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee. We have thy holy word. We have it from the faithful witness. We don't have to doubt it or question it. We dare not argue with it or rebel against it. Enable us then to lay it to heart and press it upon us this day. Enable us to think seriously about it. And do thou bless it to us. Hear us now, pardon us, and accept us. For Christ the Redeemer's sake. Amen.